Hello, my fellow Israelites. Sorry, 21st century watchers. Today I, Moses, will be showing you who God was talking to when he says, Let us make man in our image. In Genesis 1.26, many are probably thinking, Why does God say, Let us make man, if he's the only one who creates them? In verse 27, is he talking to his angels, the Trinity? Today, I will use my experience to answer that question. Now, you might be thinking, Moses, why haven't you just went ahead and told us the answer? Well, the problem is that it's been a long time. Okay, give me a break. I slave and slave with these Israelites, and you ask these questions, this is how you treat me. I'm sure you're also thinking, Moses, it's been 3,000 years since you led Israel. You're right. You're right. But it puts a toil on a person, okay? It's okay. I'll still use my experience to answer that question. Okay, let's read the text of Genesis just to get an idea of what we need to figure out. The relevant passage begins on the sixth day of God's creating of heaven and earth. God has just created the animals that live on land. And then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. How one interprets this passage will depend a lot on how you think the Bible was written, as well as the intention God had for it. In other words, if we want to understand what let us make means in Genesis 1, we have to know the purpose of why it was written, as that will change how you interpret the text. If you think even the smallest toddler will be able to pick it up and understand it, you will interpret the Bible a lot differently than the person that thinks Genesis 1 was written to a very specific audience. Imagine if a husband was writing a letter to his wife about how much he missed her while he was traveling for business. Well, he would have a lot greater chance of using a phrase that only her and him know the meaning behind, compared to if the husband were writing to a person he had never met. Likewise, languages change quite often, and therefore what words mean can change extremely quickly. Compare the language of the KGV with the language in our modern Bibles. The exact same spelling of a word often means completely different things. The KJV translators obviously weren't translating the Bible with the intention of 21st century readers looking at it simply because they had no idea how English would be used in the future, nor would have been helpful for them. They spoke in their specific language that they used at the time in their culture and therefore, to attempt to understand what they meant by a translation, we often have to read other texts of that time period to get a general understanding of how a specific word is used. Now, we can certainly compare how a word is used in the KJV with a way it is used somewhere else in the KJV, but that's not always very helpful. Sometimes we have to look at other letters and books from around the time, which give us a full picture of how the words are used. Dr. Daniel McClellan wonderfully explains why we have to do this for a book like the KJV. Words don't have meaning. They're just signs, and they just signify or point to conceptual packages. And these conceptual packages differ from time to time, place to place, 
and from person to person. And so you understand the conceptual package to the degree that you have experience with usage of that word and you have knowledge of the agreements about what conceptual packages will be indicated by what words. And so one way this works is uh, I grew up using the words coat and jacket as synonyms. They referred to the exact same thing. My wife grew up understanding a jacket to be something larger and heavier than a coat. And so she would say the jacket and I would grab something and she'd say, no, that's a coat. I had no experience with that usage. I had no knowledge of that agreement about what conceptual package was tied to the use of what word. And this is where things get really complicated for trying to understand ancient languages because we don't have living informants to tell us, no, you fool, that refers to this. We have to try to suss it out ourselves from the context. We also don't have, for at least biblical Hebrew, uh, people saying this means precisely this, and here are all the details about that. We get that with like Greek and Latin in later periods, but we don't have that for ancient Hebrew. And so we have to look back and try to figure out, based on the way the words are used in their contexts, what all of the contours and extent of those conceptual packages might have been. And it is further complicated by the fact that the Hebrew Bible covers almost a thousand years of usage. And in a thousand years, the meanings of words change significantly. So it's phenomenally complex. Some Christians don't think we should read the Bible this way. Some look at the Bible as their message from God sent directly to them and everyone else throughout history of which each person can fully understand. And all they need is the help of the Holy Spirit. The logic goes that God has a message to give us so he would make it as clear as possible. And therefore, we don't need to read texts from other cultures surrounding the Israelites because the Bible is a special book of which the Holy Spirit is all the help they need. God is not the author of confusion, after all. On a similar note, many Christians read Genesis 1 as if it was coming straight from God's mouth because they think God was the only one around to know how it happened and therefore Adam or Moses simply wrote down whatever God told them. Other Christians take a different approach. Just like the KJV translators wouldn't be using language with the goal of sending us a message in the 21st century and therefore didn't use words like computer, meme, or television whatever those are, these other Christians read the Bible as an inspired book, but still a book written by humans who use specific language that isn't immediately apparent for us 21st century readers. They would say that God had the Bible written for us, but not to us, and therefore we have to figure out why, how, and when the originally inspired authors wrote the texts in order to understand them just like how we have to use other writings from the time of the KJV to understand some words. They think the Bible is inspired, but that God uses the Holy Spirit in its infinite wisdom to lead us to other texts so we can understand his word. When they read Genesis compared to other texts from the Egyptians and Babylonians and other nations of which were Israel's neighbors, they point out that the language is often quite similar. They certainly don't think the Bible 
copied from these other cultures. Rather, they would say the language of the text used in Genesis 1 was simply how one wrote during that time period. Just like how we use words that only people in the modern times will understand, like computer, meme, and television. They think Genesis 1 uses the same language and concepts of that time period. For example, they would point out things like the light appearing before the sun is created, the separation of the primordial waters to make an upper waters in the sky and a lower waters in the ocean, along with the lower waters so that the dry land could appear. Sometimes they will point to the similar use of the perfect number 7, which is all throughout Genesis 1, or God resting after his creation. All of these ideas are seen in other ancient texts of the time. Now, one might think that these maybe are just copying from the Bible, which is possible, but that makes it tricky because the similarities are more conceptual rather than simply copying word for word. We don't have time to talk about it today, but there's an endless amount of reasons to think the writer of Genesis and the other writers from outside the Bible aren't copying from each other. And another long list of reasons to think the texts outside the Bible didn't have an original origin from Genesis 1. So either all the different texts just happen to be using the same language and ideas as Genesis, or it's almost like they were using similar language to because that's just how they spoke and thought about the world then. Christians who take this view would say that God took people in their time, in their place, like Moses, myself, who used their language and ideas to give the message he wanted to give the people and us. An important question briefly touched upon was the topic of when Genesis was written. While some think it was written by Adam 6,000 or so years ago, others will point to how there isn't a place in the Bible where it says that. It does seem to heavily imply that Moses, myself, wrote some of it, but not all of it. And if Moses wrote any of it, it would have been somewhere from 1600 BC to 1000 BC. So many would argue that Moses, myself, was writing for the Israelites coming out of Egypt so that they would know who the one true God is and that the other texts of the other cultures were wrong. Others will point out how the book of Genesis was clearly copied, edited, and translated by scribes, inspired by God sometime around 500 BC. We know this with almost certainty because someone clearly updated the place names and mentioned kings before kings existed, along with a whole other bunch of things in the text that wouldn't have existed in my time or at the beginning of the world. Of all things, Hebrew didn't even exist 6,000 years ago, and Hebrew was very different in my time compared to what we have now. Therefore, some of these other Christians might say that Genesis 1 was at least edited and maybe even written around 500 BC. They would say that it's certainly possible that God inspired someone to write Genesis 1 because it was a message that the Israelites needed while they were stuck in Babylon, struggling with how to understand who the one true God is. There are some benefits to this approach. If Moses was writing Genesis to an Israelite audience that doesn't know about modern science, we can safely assume that he wasn't going to be trying to teach them anything remotely close to it. We also would be able to rule out other interpretations that would confuse the audience. If God wanted the Israelites to understand, 
he wouldn't use language that they would be clueless about or language that causes them to reject God, especially if it was written directly to them. All that to say, if we conclude that all of the endless amount of similarities are good enough reason to think that God was using the writers of Genesis 1 to write a specific message using specific language that meant a specific thing to the original audience, that would help a lot in understanding God's word. So now that we have a general idea of how the purpose of Genesis changes how we read it, let's look at the actual topic. To repeat, the main things we to remember are that God says, let us make humankind or man in our image after our likeness. And then it later says, God created humankind. As in, it seems like he did it himself without the other people included in us. Interestingly enough, the idea of let us when creating and idea of the image of God is not used much in the Bible, but it is used all throughout the text of Israel's neighbors. This makes perfect sense if the Israelites were in Egypt or Babylon when this was written or edited, since they would have been thoroughly familiar with what it meant to be made in the image of God. As mentioned before, other texts outside the Bible would often use the let us language when their gods would create things. One interesting text in particular is in the Akkadian and Sumerian texts designated Kar 4. They say, as they had already established the plan of the universe and with the intention of preparing their irrigation system that was determined by the course of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And now what are we going to do? What are we going to make now? Flesh-growing place of Duranki. We are going to slay two divine Allah, and from their blood give birth to human beings. Yes, I do remember this story now. Here we have a god talking to other gods to discuss making human beings, which is very similar to how God talks to whoever the us is when he says, let us make man in Genesis. Additionally, a Neo-Babylonian tablet on the creation of humans says, Let us create a clay figure on which to impose the labor in the assembly of the gods. He looked at from all sides. He completed his bodily form. Now, hypothetically, you might think that these other texts must have been copied from the Bible or something like that. Even if they did, we can still expect to think that they might mean the same things or have been included in there for the same reasons if different texts use the same concepts like we have here. What many fail to note about Genesis 1 is that this passage, this let us language, is extremely vague. The text doesn't tell us who the us is, and this let us language is only used two other times in Genesis. Whoever wrote Genesis 1 Whoever wrote Genesis 1, whether it was me or someone else, it was clearly for people that already knew who the us was. Otherwise, it seems reasonable to think he would have wanted to explain it further. If he didn't, the original audience for whom Genesis 1 was written would have spent time distracted from the central meaning of the text because they were confused on who the us was. Say hypothetically that the text was written by Adam from the very beginning. Well, he probably would know who the us was. But Moses, myself being the brilliant editor that I was, that I probably would have added 
an additional explanatory note if my audience didn't know who the us was. Likewise, for any other possible writers or God-inspired editors and compilers from later on, we don't see an additional editorial note. For this reason, whatever the answer is, it almost certainly had to have been something that my original audience from my time and possibly later had to have understood. Before we talk about options, there are a few biblical verses worth mentioning. While the other Genesis passages that use us language aren't that helpful, in 2 Samuel 24:14, David uses the plural or us language as representative of all Israel. And in Isaiah 6, 8, the Lord speaks on behalf of his heavenly court with the us language. 1 Kings 22, 9-22 Job 1, 6-12, 2, 1-6, and Isaiah 6, 1-8 all speak of God talking with his heavenly court as well, which consists of God's angels and other divine beings. The idea of a divine council is seen almost throughout all of the Old Testament, which makes this an intriguing option for who God is speaking to when God says, let us make, in Genesis 1. It also fits with the other language from these other texts outside the Bible, where there is a discussion with other divine beings before creation is accomplished. Obviously, the writer inspired by God wouldn't be writing about other divine beings of equal status, but the idea of a discussion between divine beings would certainly be common verbiage in this culture. Rather, Given how much it happened, it seems like divine communication before creating would have been seen as a very important act with great purpose behind it. This has a big potential problem with it, though. If God is saying, hey, let us go and create these humans, doesn't that mean the other divine creatures were creators, too? We don't see that concept in the Bible at all, which would be unlikely if this were true. Dr. John Walton argues, such inclusion of the heavenly court in discussion does not in any sense necessitate that angels must then have been used as agents of creation. In Isaiah 6-8, the council's decision is carried out by Yahweh alone. So while God may discuss with his heavenly cohort, it doesn't mean that God isn't making the decision. Interestingly, in just one verse later in Genesis 1.27, it says that God specifically created man in his own image without any us language. It was God who was doing it alone. So, why the switch in language here? Here is an example that could explain what's going on. Suppose you and your young friends are hanging out. You say, let's drive to the movies. They all pile into your automobile that moves around and is on wheels. I don't know what those are. And you all go to the movies. Your friends didn't do anything. They weren't driving. But the language still fits. In the same way, God is saying, let's make someone in our image. God is the one with the plan and he does all the work. He just verbalizes his plan to the heavenly host. Some critics argue that implying God seeks counsel from angels on certain matters, as suggested in Isaiah 40, 14, diminishes the divine nature of God. Dr. John Walton responds to this argument saying, we must distinguish between consulting and discussing. God has no need to either consult or discuss with anyone. 
As Isaiah 40, 14 affirms, it is his prerogative, however, to discuss anything he wants with whoever he chooses. We see all throughout the Bible where God discusses what he will do with humans. It is not as if that makes God lesser than, and it's the same with his heavenly counsel. Others argue that this kind of view would imply that the angels were also made in God's image, and that can't be right because the Bible never says that anywhere else. Of all the arguments against this view, this one makes the least sense to me. There is no rule that says the writer of Genesis or any other text can't write about something unless there is another verse which already claims the same thing. That makes no sense. There is no verse in the Bible that claims or even implies that other divine heavenly beings couldn't also have been made in the image of God. So we therefore have no reason to think that us couldn't have been referring to God's heavenly counsel based off of this reason alone. In fact, we have no verses at all that speak of how other divine beings were created. So it's not like we would even expect to find a verse saying angels were created in the image of God if this were true. Now, because we spent a lot of time on this one view, it might be helpful to sum up the evidence for the us being God's heavenly counsel. One, God appears to talk with this divine counsel often throughout the Bible. Two, similar language is used inside and outside the Bible to describe a similar thing. Three, considering these types of references wouldn't have put Moses and the other Israelites in an utter state of confusion because they would have been used to this language. This is probably what they would have thought. This view is probably what they would have immediately thought, and therefore any other explanation would have only guaranteed that it would have confused the earliest audiences of Genesis, of which this was probably written for. Number four, if written earlier, then when Moses and other editors lived, it seems likely that they would have added clarification to prevent confusion if the us referred to anyone else. With that being said, there have been other proposed interpretations, such as a plural of deliberation, or that it is the plural of majesty, where God would essentially be referring to himself for stylistic reasons. These options have very little evidence for them, as the plural of majesty isn't used with verbs, and the verses used to support the view, like 2 Samuel 24.14 and Isaiah 6.8, as the NET Bible notes, do not actually support this theory. In 2 Samuel 24.14, David uses the plural as representative of all Israel, and in Isaiah 6.8, the Lord speaks on behalf of his heavenly court. While this view is possible, it seems there is little evidence for it, and bears the problem of the original audience not knowing what it meant. On the other hand, there is one view that is extremely popular among Christians. It is the view that the us is God referring to the Trinity. The logic makes sense. The text says God is referring to multiple entities, which must be divine in some way. We know that the Trinity has always existed. The New Testament writers also seem to say that the members of the Trinity assisted in creation. So, it makes sense that if we saw a plural of divine entities in Genesis 1, that it would refer to the Trinity. It also explains why there is a shift from let us make to God created, because the us would refer to the Trinity, but also the Trinity is God, so it makes sense. After all, one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. People of this view would also point to Genesis 1-2, which mentions the Spirit of God, 
And they would say that refers to the Holy Spirit, another member of the Trinity. So if we assume that the God that is mentioned is God the Father, combined with the New Testament references, it seems like all members of the Trinity are in Genesis 1. Additionally, they would point out how the word Elohim, which is typically translated God in Genesis 1, is technically grammatically plural, which means that it is technically possible that this could be referring to the Trinity, but of course God is one God, so that the plurality refers to multiple persons. We will have to talk about the legitimacy of this view in a later video. In further explanation for this argument, the idea of the Trinity is never explicitly laid out in the Old Testament, so this would make sense if someone was simply writing what happened. And that's why we don't have explicit references to the Trinity as we know them today. Clearly, someone like myself wouldn't say, God spoke with the other members of the Trinity when creating because I didn't have a full description to know exactly what they were back then. In other words, to people that argue this view of the Trinity, the text of Genesis 1 looks like something where God said, Write this down, word for word, without any further clarification for myself for what that means, and, and therefore that's why it's not completely obvious to us who the us is, nor would it have been to someone in my time. This is where we begin to see some objections to this view. People who disagree with this view would argue that the text doesn't look like something that just fell from the sky, or like something that's written down specifically from God. It seems to be using the same language and concepts of someone living around my time. The same people would mention how the Trinity wasn't a concept that the Old Testament writers and readers would have been familiar with. So if they are using their own language to write, it seems unlikely that they would be using Trinity language. There are vague possible references to the Trinity in other places in the Bible, and even in Genesis, but those are all vague in themselves. Apart from supernatural divine revelation from God, people like the ancient Israelites and even the potential editors and writers of Genesis 1 itself would certainly not have thought, oh, this must be another reference to that vague other reference to the being that is God, but isn't God. Rather, with all the other texts that we spoke about which describe God or other gods speaking with their divine counsel, the people of my time, Moses' time, would have almost certainly concluded the wrong thing about this text if the Trinity was in view. In other words, if this were a reference to the Trinity, it most likely would have guaranteed that Moses' audience and the rest of the Israelites, until the coming of Jesus, would have not only been confused, but probably would have concluded the wrong thing. If the Israelites were already struggling with following God, which they were, believe me, it makes little sense to say that God would throw in something else that was confusing just to mention the Trinity. By the way, this is your reminder to like and subscribe if you find value in this content. Others will present another objection by pointing out how each member of the Trinity is omniscient. Now, of course, some will say that Jesus was not omniscient while on earth, but almost all will say he is while in heaven. If the Trinity is omniscient, it makes little sense to say that God the Father was speaking with a different member of the Trinity 
because he would have already known everything, including what each would say. One would get around this objection by pointing out that it's possible that some members of the Trinity aren't all-knowing. It's also theoretically possible that the members of the Trinity speak with each other, even though it isn't necessary. I'll let you decide if that fully addresses the objections. An additional argument for it being the Trinity in Genesis 1.26 is that the New Testament writers seem to think Jesus was creating the world with God in Genesis 1. Someone who disagrees with the Trinity being the us would say that Jesus being there at the beginning doesn't suddenly mean that the us is Jesus or the Holy Spirit. They will point out how none of the New Testament references say anything specific about who the us is in this verse. And therefore, it's certainly possible that Jesus was there at the time of creation, along with the Holy Spirit, but the us still refers to God's angelic hosts. People doubtful of the Trinity view would also argue that people of New Testament time in and outside the Bible didn't read the text of Genesis like we do today. For some examples, if you're curious, many read Genesis as if Adam had the laws of Moses, which were written much later than Adam would have existed, or figuratively like Adam was symbolic for all of us, or take a note in Josephus, where he describes Adam as a Greek philosopher. While it certainly wasn't metaphorical all of the time, they also don't seem to be attempting to find out what the original meaning of the text was. The writers of the New Testament are primarily concerned with showing who Jesus was, how Jesus is God, and therefore not very concerned about making historical points about what really happened when they reference the Old Testament. It's not that they were making wrong claims, but they were primarily making theological claims under God's inspiration. So what do you think of the views proposed? How important do you think it is to get into the eyes of the ancient Israelite author? Do you think the earliest readers would have understood what this meant? Of course, tell me what I Moses did wrong. I don't have perfect memory, of course, so make sure to let me know in the comments what you think. Anyways, this is what your pastor didn't tell you, and I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.